0: Welcome to UO today. I'm Paul Peppas, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Daniel Martinez-Hosang, associate professor of ethnicity, race, and race and migration and American Studies at Yale University. He holds a secondary appointment in the Department of Political Science. Prior to joining the faculty of Yale at, in 2017. Hosang was an associate professor and department head of ethnic studies and political science at the University of Oregon, where he also served on the OHC's faculty advisory board. Hosang's numerous publications include the forthcoming edited volume, Under the Black Light, the intersectional vulnerabilities that twin pandemics lay bare, co-edited with Kimberly Crenshaw, as well as the authored volumes, A Wider Type of Freedom, How Struggles for Racial Justice Liberate Everyone, 2021, Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race, and the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity, 2019, co-authored with Joseph Lowndes, and Racial Propositions, Ballot Initiatives, and the Making of Post-War California from 2010. Hoseng has also co-edited the volumes Seeing Race Again, Countering Colorblindness Across the Disciplines from 2019, Relational Formations of Race, Theory, Method, and Practice from 2019, and Racial Formation in the 21st Century from 2012. On December 1st, 2021, Hosang will give a virtual talk, A Wider Type of Freedom, How Struggles for Racial Justice Liberate Everyone, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2122 Lorwin Lecturer on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. Thanks, Dan, for coming on the show. It's great to see you.
1: Uh, Paul, I'm so grateful for the invitation and the opportunity to be in conversation with you. Um, and, you know, I treasure, treasure the time I was uh, allowed to spend uh, at the University of Oregon, including my time with OHC. So this is just a real treat for me.
0: Let's begin with the forthcoming collection you've edited with Kimberly Crenshaw, Under the Black Light, the intersectional vulnerabilities that twin pandemics lay bare. Can you give us a thumbnail uh, account of the project of that collection?
1: Yeah, this is uh, really work that's uh, based on Kim Crenshaw on the African American Policy Forum. Uh, right after the pandemic closed everything down in March of 2020, uh, Kim began a, a kind of um, public facing webinar with a series of guests each week trying to lift up what is this pandemic teaching us about the structural dimensions of inequality and subordination and life and freedom. And remember that time, Paul, I mean, so much was coming at us. And there was a moment when, you know, there was almost this consensus across the, you know, a wide part of the political spectrum, like, wow, things really have to change, right? So there was just this amazing ray array of guests people who were looking at law enforcement and health policy and segregation and indigenous policy and immigration uh, offering these kind of on the ground snapshots of what they were seeing. So um, across 13 episodes, and then of course by May, we have uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis and all of the kind of public uprising against police violence. Um, and so that's, those are the two twin pandemics. There's COVID and the, the pandemic of state violence. Um, so it's really, you know, these uh, very textured accounts uh, that we've distilled into essays across 13 chapters from, you know, with really wonderful folks, Viet Nguyen, um, uh, Saidiya Hartman, a whole bunch of amazing scholars. Um, and you know, it's interesting because we're now almost, you know, we're gonna be two years out from that fairly soon. But as I'm finishing up the editing, it's like these uh, accounts are in some ways more important than ever, because I think part of what happened is as the pandemic wore on, there was probably a natural and predictable sense of like, well, how do we get back to normal? Even as just before everyone was saying, the only thing we can't do. Is get back to normal. So that's what this is an account of. And I think I hope when readers, you know, go through it, they'll be in some ways reminded of those possibilities that we were all trying to kind of hold on to at that moment. So it's a distillation of about there's 45 different contributions across 13 episodes. And it also I think sets up lastly both the events of January 6th. It puts them in a different kind of context since many of those issues were kind of previewed and some of the you know, uh, takeovers at state capitals that happened across the summer. And really, I think what we'll talk about in a minute is the uh, attacks on anti-racist education, and critical race theory, because they're all linked across this time.
0: Okay, so let's talk about that. Your editor, Kimberly Crenshaw, who you've uh, collaborated with before, is one of the founding and leading scholars of critical race theory. So. You know, obviously, this term has become this flashpoint in the American culture war. So, tell us first how you understand the term and the practice of critical race theory, and then what you make of the current controversies that are surrounding it, and also, especially, surrounding anti racist curricula in public schools. Yeah,
1: that's such an important question. You know, so um, a critical race theory is a term, uh, Kim and other legal scholars. Um, offered and developed and collaboratively produced really in the late 1980s, just a very quick genealogy. It's important to remember that their attention was not just on kind of conservatives and the kind of remnants of like Nixon to Reagan who are fighting civil rights, their account was actually of liberal institutions, and there was a, a, a good uh, critical mass of them at Harvard Law School, many of whom openly identified with civil rights um, commitments and claims that said, look, you know, we're now a generation removed from these civil rights laws, and racial in- inequality has only become further entrenched. Uh, it's, and so we have to come to account with how in a society that's kind of like Animated and riven by rights talk, we still are not seeing substantive material justice. So it's an inquiry and a lens, a set of questions to understand that material reality. And it's skeptical in some ways that simply affording rights and uh, status formally to um, uh, stigmatized and subordinated groups will result automatically in forms of real substantive justice. So I think about it in that way, as a kind of way to understand relations of power, a set of questions we asked, rather than even a position or an interpretation of those.
0: And And what about this, you know, the fact that, you know, you. I mean, this was created, as you say, in the 80s, and here we are in the 2020s, and suddenly, you know, there's controversies about public school education in the United States that leads to, you know, election of Republican governors. So you say a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is a little bit you know, dizzying. And, you know, I, I taught a class, a large lecture class at the U of O for many years where we all, we talked often about critical race theory, entirely unremarkable. Um, and, you know, I, I think that... You know, even in the opening salvos of this discussion last fall when Christopher Rufo, who's a kind of self-identified conservative journalist pundit, you know, um, was trying to seize on, and this is, of course, in the aftermath of the pandemic and the uprisings, a set of kind of issues and debates that could mobilize and generate issue uh, interest among conservatives. You know, the actual practices he was talking about then had nothing to do with critical race theory. They were diversity trainings in the federal government. And he's been very clear that critical race theory just kind of stands in for a broad set of practices. So I think, you know, we're very clear that the actual term has very little to do with the, the kind of subject of this debate. And, you know, just the one other thing I'll add about this is I don't even think, you you know, my sense is even in K through 12 classrooms, and certainly in university classrooms, students, parents, administrators, they want us to engage students in the complexities of the world. They want to think about contradiction, about nuance, about handling, you know, with resilience and resolve, um, complicated issues. So I think anytime you actually look at the, at the substance of the teaching, the controversy tends to go away whenever I hear the controversy recited, it tends to be in this familiar move of finding something that seems kind of inane and beyond the pale and arguing that it stands in for something much broader. And when we're in that terrain, it's very, very difficult to actually call attention to what the work is doing.
0: Thanks for that uh, discussion, it's really helpful. So your upcoming lecture is this year's Lorwin Lecturer on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties is based on your most recent monograph, A Wider Type of Freedom. Can you give us a brief preview of the book's argument?
1: Um, you know, th- we're in, as I said, this kind of moment of really renewed and wider attention to anti-racism. And I think it raises the question then, well, what is, what is racial justice? What, and by extension, what is freedom? What does that mean? And uh, part of the effort of the book is to recover in some ways a genealogy a a history, a set of practices, uh, answers and responses to that question that have argued that racial justice isn't just equitable incorporation into the very same systems that have historically produced so much inequality. So Dr. King in 1967 says to his friend, Harry Belafonte, I fear I'm integrating my people into a burning house. Now this is not the king that most of us know about, right? And and what a shift for him from three years earlier when he was championing, that you know, the passage of these laws, and this was not to, to adopt some kind of deeply cynical or pessimistic orientation. He said, "We can't let the house burn." Uh, nor can we just rush in, we have to actually think about building something that provides humanity and possibility uh, and freedom for everyone. And that's not just a flourish, it's both a flourish of King's own brilliance, but it's repeated across a long history of these efforts in which the very specific actions to try to confront abuse and violence and inequality yield much broader horizons that can benefit everyone. And that's uh, partly that the title comes from uh, an observation by the the great theorist C.L.R. James, um, in which he argued that um, black-led struggles against Jim Crow and sharecropping and against, against uh, segregation in South Africa actually had universal bearings and, and uh, implications that everyone should be invested in.
0: So let me ask a, a follow-up on that. One of the things that's notable about the book is its global scope, uh, and why why was it important that you didn't just write a book about liberational movements in the United States? Why look beyond the borders of the US?
1: I mean, I think it's one of the, um, you know, challenges of being socialized and educated within the US is that many of us who went through the system uh, kind of bear the parochial sense, you call it US exceptionalism, but that kind of like the US is the world writ large. And of course, um, uh, at its best, I mean, I I really focused on um, a history of anti-racist movements in the US that understood that there's really no possibility of realizing justice, substantive justice in the US without accounting for the relationship of the the nation to the rest of the world. Um, And so we can call that internationalism, call that global solidarity, but a long sense that you couldn't just resolve things within the nation. Um, And and that that wasn't just about um, a kind of certain like humanitarianism, or some sense of like a, you know, caring for those less fortunate. It was that these, these struggles were actually linked together. You, you can't get justice in East LA or Newark if you're not also thinking about justice in Vietnam or in South Africa. And that's part of the tradition that I'm uh, uh, trying to remind us of in some ways.
0: So, a crucial part of the argument is a, a move from a kind of zero sum game conception of rights uh, along the lines of this. Uh, conversion that King had um, about the kind of problem with liberal anti-racism. So will you just tell us a little bit more about the critique that the book uh, re- recovers for us of liberal anti-racism?
1: Yeah. So that critique is um, goes something like this, or the account of liberal anti-racism, that what freedom means is actually incorporation incorporation into the nation as citizen, incorporation to the market as a worker, as a consumer, as a soldier in the military. And that once you're fully incorporated, that's what, that, that gives you the basis to live a free life. And you know, p- part of what I'm, um, again, uh, arguing that we need to remember is that those incorporations are always two-faced or two-sided. They come with both possibilities and opportunities but they also come with liability and responsibility. And you know John Kennedy makes this very famous speech uh, to, in, in support of the Civil Rights Bill in 1963, where he talks about this, the need for integration, to incorporate those that are left out. And then he says very clearly, but once you're incorporated, you have responsibility now, the onus is on you. And so we often think that that liberal vision of Kennedy's um, protects us from harm, But I'm trying to point to another critique that said, it also at at the same time can expose people to harm. And uh, that's always been mindful. And there's a long, long history of anti-racist movements and thinkers who have said, we don't just want to imitate what's been done to us. That's not good for us. It's not good for anyone else. Our charge is to create something else, uh, other alternatives. Um, The last thing I'll say is, you know, the great anti-colonial thinker, Franz Fanon, said this. He said, you know, if we're just trying to imitate European society, you know, he says this kind of in the late, uh, in like the 1960s, just leave it to them. They know how to do it. They're going to be better at it. I don't think that's what our charge is. Uh, you know, decolonialism isn't just replicating that. It's imagining something else. So a long history of that, that I think is an important resource for our thinking today.
0: Well, we're really excited about the lecture that you'll give on on December 1st, where you'll tell us more about a wider type of freedom. We're really looking forward to that. So let me now turn to some of your earlier work. Um, Tell us first um, about your 2019 uh, book that you co-authored with UO political science professor Joe Lowndes uh, called Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race, and the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity. Tell us a little bit about the argument and project of that book.
1: Yeah, I mean, this was a, a longstanding project with my dear friend and colleague, the brilliant Joe Lowndes. And, you know, folks based in the Northwest will remember well before the election of 2016, there had been a kind of resurgence of militia activity um, and, uh, in the Northwest in particular, um, at a time when um, the kind of, you know, this was, remember, so we have the great recession in 2008, 2009 And it's clear to everyone that this is not just something cyclical. It seems like a much more permanent redistribution of wealth and power. It's upending everything. And so part of the questions we're asking are like, well, how is that going to shape the ways that people think and act and move around race, anti-racism, justice, and freedom? So, um, you know, remember, uh, like just during the pandemic, there's a NBC, CNBC reporter um, on the floor of, I think the Chicago Mercantile Stock Exchange. And he says, you know, we're not gonna pay anymore for the losers mortgages. And it was that sense that it was, it was this idea that there's those, the producers who are the makers, they, they produce value. And then there's the takers, the parasites. And so we're really tracking that kind of idea of who gets to inhabit and occupy and claim, who's the producer, and who gets blamed to be the taker, and the way, the very complex ways that has come to structure um, uh, political culture in the U.S. today.
0: So given the analysis of the book, do you have any strategies to combat the eruption and, and endurance of white supremacy in the U.S.?
1: What a big question, Paul, if, if, I, if we had the answer to that, only if we did. You know, this is one of, I think, the, what we learned. So Joe and I started this book when we were colleagues at the U of O, finished it uh, often through text and email chains across country. And part of what we were noting is the way white supremacy itself was morphing and changing. So, um, you know, these groups, Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer, increasingly have a small but significant set of people of color at their leadership. They're incorporating and learning how to incorporate some narratives of multiculturalism and even diversity, even in service of a deeply authoritarian vision, one that's quick to blame and still hold out scapegoats of parasites. So I only say that to say you know, to your question, The the notion that we can just kind of like shame away the extremists and invite people back into the good liberal center, I think is gone, because the good liberal center and the 2008 recession was the proof of this leaves far too many people unprotected and invested in its future. So a part of what it means is we can expect that uh, kind of on the right broadly, we're gonna only see a further broadening and widening of its base and support. And if we're to really combat that, we have to think about the institutions that are in, supposed to provide protection, public protection for us, give us you know, possibilities for housing and food and shelter, all these problems we know are acute, they're acute there, they're acute here. That's the only way, right? Otherwise, uh, it, it's that sense, that precarity, that sense of loss that is actually feeding the growing sense that something has to topple.
0: Really interesting, thank you so much for that. So. Uh, Let's talk a, briefly about your first monograph from 2010, Racial Propositions, Ballot Initiatives, and the Making of post California. Say a little bit about the effort of that book.
1: Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll just, uh, a little bit of background. I had worked as a community organizer in California from the early 90s through the early 2000s when I went back to graduate school. And this was a time when California was racked by a series of high-profile ballot measures. So Uh, 1994 effort to make immigration status uh, the condition on which any public aid could be provided. Um, Far more draconian than anything, actually, Trump has ever uh, uh, put forward 1996 the first state to propose the elimination of public affirmative action. Uh, A crime bill in 1994 that criminalized a huge set of uh, deepened uh, uh, sentencing. Measure to um, ban bilingual education, uh, a measure to ban uh, or to define marriage as only between a man and a woman. California is a liberal state then, as it is now. Democrats dominate the electorate, and yet all of those measures pass. And the account that we had often worked with was you know, someone has come in and sullied California because the good California wouldn't do that. In other words, liberalism, good liberals wouldn't do that. Something has happened. And so I this is part of the experience I brought in when I started this research and I found that you know there was precedence to this. In 1946 Californians had proposed a fair employment ballot measure to outlaw discrimination by race and religion by employers and unions 64 there was a measure that made racial discrimination and housing a constitutionally protected practice. In the 70s, measures to overturn busing for uh, uh, school desegregation, English only measures in the 80s. The dynamic was the same. Liberal forward-thinking electorate, all of them passed. I mean, very few people know that in 1964, two thirds of California voters voted to put in the constitution to make race and religious discrimination in housing a constitutionally protected practice. So the book is really about liberal ideas about progress and personhood um, uh, actually are a much more uh, sturdy resource to legitimate inequality than we might think.
0: Fascinating, fascinating. You are also a co-editor and you've co-edited four important and substantial volumes of essays with a really distinguished list of co-editors, including Kimberly Crenshaw, Luke Harris, and Jordan Lipsitz, Ramon Gutierrez and uh, Natalia Molina, and Anika Bennett, and UO Professor of Geography and Race, Indigenous, and Ethnic Studies, Laura Pulido. Why are such collaborative editorial projects important and rewarding for you?
1: Thanks Paul, I really appreciate that question, you know we're often socialized in the academy that the most distinguished work you have to kind of show your like bona fides, Um, obviously less so in the sciences. Um, And of course, that's not how real thinking and collaboration and progress work. It happens through exchange, the sharing of ideas, being in dialogue with one another. So these edited volumes just offer a a kind of a a platform for that. Um, They're all preceded by uh, conferences and meetings for people to be able to share ideas. I think together, I'll just say quickly, um, there was also an aspiration. There's a way in which we can, uh, there's a kind of tendency to think like, well, look, race is pretty straightforward. Racism is bad, anti-racism is good, race is a social construction, I'm good. And you know we wanna introduce like complexity and challenges and contradictions. And so you know, hopefully all of those projects do that. They show race as something that's changing, dynamic, uh, both can challenge power, but also shore it up. And, and the last one I'll talk about, the colorblindness one, is really about the academic disciplines and their role in uh, their kind of co-constitution with racial hierarchy. We can think about eugenics, but we can think about this in every field and the ongoing legacy of that. So that when institutions like my institution and yours wanna think about equity and inclusion, we cannot cordon off the curriculum and say, well, don't worry about there. What we should do is think about our own implicit biases or you know, these kind of small factors or diversity appointments. Some of this work has to be in our research paradigms, in our pedagogy and the frameworks we use to produce knowledge.
0: So you are not just an, an academic, you also work extensively with K through 12 educators and other community-based organizations. So tell us a little bit about that, that work that you did.
1: Yeah, that's it's uh, for me among the most gratifying work I've had to do. My institution has a program that allows us to offer seminars to teachers in, in New Haven Public Schools, um, and you, I've worked with them. So this is for three years on uh, developing curriculum units that bring some of these analytics into what they teach: statistics, <laughs> kindergarten uh, art, uh, middle school literature. So it's a chance to think about how we take the frameworks and ideas kind of in, let's call it ethnic studies and make them useful to teachers, to students everywhere. And the, you know, for me, the gift is watching it in the teacher's hands. Uh, I've had so many experiences where I can kind of show them history and they, they know exactly how they wanna make use of it and how they can use it to intervene in their students' learning. Um, I've also been involved in a project called the Anti-Racist Teaching and Learning Collective that we helped start in Connecticut, which is really thinking You know, many, many teachers, uh, Connecticut's uh, demographics are like many other places, that the, K-12 teaching force is mostly white, it's actually mostly white women, they have not had a chance to uh, take courses in ethnic studies, you know, critical studies, indigenous studies, and so when they're being uh, asked, hey, let's teach in a more rigorous, complicated way, they often don't have the support they need. They haven't been socialized and given those resources and they're working tirelessly, especially during the pandemic. So the question is, how do you support them, not demonize them, but support them in kind of skilling up to meet their students' needs? And the the response has just been tremendous. Science educators, art educators, music, social studies, working together to collaboratively support one another, produce new curriculum units, pedagogies, we've done webinars, so it's been really exciting.
0: So you also serve as faculty advisor to the Racial capitalism and Carceral State Working Group. Tell us about that group and what it does.
1: Yeah, it's a graduate group, uh, you know, draws students from all over the institution. Um, you know, there used to be a kind of a, a field that might sound a little more specialized. Let's call it, you know, just carceral studies or the study of prison. Some of it is like in criminology, sociology, history. Um, but this is a part of, and it certainly didn't start here, a body of work that understands this idea of like carcerality, control, segregation, institutionalization as having wide, wide ranging impacts. It shapes how we provide healthcare, it shapes how we think about segregation, it shapes how we think about city revenues. So it's a really expansive way to understand how living in a nation, right? That has, what is it? one twentieth of the world's population and one fifth of the world's prisoners is not just about that. It's not just about penal policy. It's about a whole wide range of logics. And so it's been great to have law students and history students and students of literature in conversations about those trends.
0: So uh, as we've discussed already, prior to moving to Yale, you were here at the University of Oregon, and you've collaborated with UO scholars Joe Lowndes, Priscilla Yaman, and and Laura Polito. As you look back on your time at UO, how do you understand the impact it had on you as a scholar and as a person?
1: Yeah, I could, I could talk about this for an hour, Paul, but I'll keep it short. Um, I am so grateful to have kind of learned how to be an academic at the U of O, because it taught me the importance of not just collegiality, but actually collaboration, cooperation, why no one of us will ever have a kind of uh, singular insight into decisions, whether it's a hiring decision. So we can think about the OHS practice of involving faculty from different backgrounds and reviewing colleagues' work and uh, contributing to making decisions about funding. I mean, that sense of like that process, um, I find so precious and dear. I learned so much from it. I learned an enormous amount. About seven years ago, there was a unionization effort which brought faculty from all over to think and learn about one another's lives that we don't typically have a chance to do. So I guess I'll just say that you know, the academy can be quite isolating, quite individualistic, achievement-oriented, and there's so much about the culture of the university, the faculty culture, and the student culture that uh, countered that and prized acknowledgement and collectivity, and uh, I'll, I, I'm just um, eternally grateful for that.
0: Well, we are eternally grateful to have shared you for that period in your career. It's just been such a great, uh, great to be able to work with you and to have you contribute to, to the life we have here. We're coming to the end of my time. Um, next question is you know, among all these other things that we've talked about, you're also a teacher. Um, tell us a little bit about one of your recent classes.
1: Yeah, sure, I always love talking about teaching. Well, just uh, I'll I'll tell about two quickly. Um, One is a a class on anti-racist teaching and pedagogy that was actually done during the pandemic, was trying to think about, you know, the students have all this energy, they wanna contribute, but the setup of our classes and our seminars is often, right, it's all directed towards the faculty. So in this case, um, in addition to all the readings and discussions we had, the students were partnered up with uh, local teachers who said, I'm really trying to get some new work into my geography unit or my um, uh, eighth grade reading units but I don't have time. And so the students worked really, really closely with the teachers to kind of curate a set of materials that they could bring right away into the class. So they worked so hard. And felt so accountable to that in ways that just exceeded, you know, what is sometimes just the kind of like going through the conventions and then a class I'm very excited about teaching next uh, semester is a class on actually on eugenics. Um, so my institution, Yale has a long history of eugenic research. It was home to the American Eugenics Society in the 1920s and 30s. Many prominent faculty from all over the university were involved in it. We're at the 100th anniversary of a huge conference at the Museum of Natural History, the Second International Congress of Eugenics. Oregon has a long history of this as well. And we, we try to sometimes tell ourselves, well, that was this unfortunate period in the 20s and 30s. Thank goodness, none of us would do that today. And part of what we're learning in this collaborative research I'm doing with students is how deep those logics go and how they continue to structure so much of academic thinking, decision-making culture today.
0: Well, thanks, Dan. It's just been so fascinating talking to you. I'm so excited that you'll be giving the Lorwin Lecture this year. What a pleasure. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much again.
1: Great. Right. thank you, Paul. It's been a delight.
0: I've been speaking with Daniel Martinez-Hosseng, Associate Professor of Ethnicity, Race and Migration and American Studies at Yale University. On December 1st, 2021, Hoa will give a virtual talk, A Wider Type of Freedom, How Struggles for Racial Justice Liberate Everyone, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2021-2022 Lorwin Lecture on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. Thanks so much for watching.